All right, well, hey, um, we're picking up this morning where we left off last week, which is our course of things here at Jinx Bible Church as we study through books of the Bible. And if you have your copy of God's Word open to chapter 5, we're picking up in chapter uh, 5, verse 12 this morning, and I titled my message this morning, again, a needed reminder, uh, pray. And as you, if you think through chapter 5, if you just go back and look, the first uh, section of chapter 5, I put a needed reminder, all that glitters is not gold, where he was giving a, a pretty harsh, very harsh, stern word against the wealthy landowners who had been mistreating the righteous. And the word that James gives to them, I believe, was by way of and the, the, the intention of his writing to the church was to remind them that the faith that awaits them is a doom that you would prefer not to have. So you actually, and we went back to chapter 1, and we see that the, the brother of humble circumstances actually has a high position, and the wealthy from chapter 1 should be um, glorying in their humility. And so we, we recognized here that chapter 5 almost seems to be a... Uh, James going all the way back to chapter 1 and tidying up on three primary essential things that he wants the church to remember. And again, in chapter 5, he's talking directly to the brethren. He's already dealt with those in the church claiming to have a saving faith, a profession only, but there were no deeds that were in keeping with repentance. They wanted to turn the grace of God into licentiousness. We looked at Jude 4. We saw that. That was happening 2,000 years ago. That's not just some new phenomenon that we see today. It's been happening a long time. I mean, who wouldn't want their cake and be able to eat it too, right? Oh, Jesus says, come, follow me. Yes, I want to follow you and have heaven to boot, but I'm, gonna not, I'm not turning away from anything I'm doing. All the things that you say are sinful in my life, no, I'm just going to keep getting a fistful of dollars and enjoying that instead. But yeah, I'm going to tag Jesus on to my life. James eviscerates that very effectively. So in chapter 5, we saw that all that glitters isn't gold. We saw that reminder. Last week, we saw the reminder, the need to be patient. Did anybody experience that this week? Weren't you glad that James reminded us of that? <laughs> Not really. Because then every time this past week it was happening, what were you thinking about? You were thinking about the Word of God and your need to be patient. And then in comparison to the brothers and sisters to whom he was writing and the suffering that they were going through, the little inconvenience that you're currently going through is really not much by comparison. And if the Word of God had the, the authority and audacity to tell those brothers to be patient, I told you it's the easy to say, the hard to do, right? Well, we're going to get a few more of those today as well because there's also a needed reminder, and that is to pray. Look at verse 12. He says, above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. So here in the context of suffering, James gives a prohibition against making empty promises, or we might say oath-making. He simply says, let your yes be yes, or your no, no. Say what you mean and mean what you say. How many of you remember the old childhood book of Horton the Elephant? I meant what I said, 
And I said what I meant. An elephant's faithful 100%. God wants his people to be faithful all the way to the end 100%, right? So don't swear by heaven, earth, or with any other oath. As far as it depends on you, have integrity in what you say and to whom you say it. If it's yes, then make your yes, yes. If it's no, then let your no stay as no. James 5.12 almost perfectly parallels Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5 in his great sermon known as the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. Remember James said, Above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven. James said, either by heaven, and then he said, or by earth. And Jesus said, don't swear by heaven, it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem. Now James tweaked his a little bit there, and he said, or by any other oath, whether that be by Jerusalem, or by Jehoshaphat, or whatever it may be, or by anything else. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Beyond Anything beyond these is of evil. Now, simple question. What does speaking oaths or oath-making have uh, to do uh, or the problem of that in the context of suffering? If you've ever suffered, you know the answer probably fairly intuitively because when you suffer, it's easy to say things that either you didn't mean or to make easy bargains with God or others to perhaps get you out of said situation of suffering. These brothers and sisters were suffering, some of them even to the point of death we saw at the hands of the wealthy landowners. The prohibition that James is making here is aiming to keep them from doing that very thing. It's, it's to keep them from making oaths or swearing things that they can neither keep nor make promises of. Have you ever heard somebody say, I swear to, by the big man upstairs, if you ever do that again, I'm going to... Perhaps you've fallen prey to doing that as well. Or, I swear to you, as sure as the sun rises tomorrow, I will pay back what I owe. The idea of invoking, um, oh, or by earth. You know, the, the invoking of the created order as a basis somehow for your trustworthiness. But I can assure you the rising of the sun is not going to pay your debts. No matter how vehemently you swear otherwise. Or perhaps you've heard someone say, and maybe in jest, but you've heard this one before, I, you know, I swear on my mother's grave. I will do fill in the blank. James is just simply saying to these brothers and sisters in the context of suffering, don't do that. The temptation is going to be great to do that. The temptation is going to be great to beg, borrow, steal, or whatever it may need, you may need to do in order to make life work for you. But don't do that. And so in our context, though our suffering may pale in comparison to theirs, we need to be people of yes and no as well. Just be a person of integrity, 
Letting your yes be yes and your no be no. And remember, God is your peace. In their circumstance, they had a very difficult life. Their circumstances were way different than ours. I typically come in on Sunday morning and I say, how you doing to people? Doing great. No worries, no worries at all. And that's typical of Christians in America, pretty much. Now, if we think hard and long enough, we might could pull up a little something from the weed bed, right? right? I mean, all of us could do that. But typically, we have a fairly well-groomed life that we oftentimes don't think about this reality. We need to keep Christ, the Lord God, as the, the, the placeholder in our hearts and our lives to where we're not having to swear by heaven or by earth or by the big man upstairs. I just hate saying the words I swear to G-O-D. I just, I can't, I can't say that, right? So even in trying to say it just as a way, of, I just can't. But I have heard that on multiple occasions. One of my favorite quotes, by the way, I've, I've got several favorites, so when I use that, that adjective, don't take it to mean more than it is, but one of my all-time favorite quotes is uh, from Elizabeth Elliot, where she says that peace is not the absence of suffering, but the presence of God. Peace is the presence of God. And James is calling these brethren from chapter 1 all the way through the end to find themselves in the Lord. So you may have some wealthy landowners mistreating you, but God is your portion and your stay. Amen? James is reminding these brethren, these suffering saints, these people of truth, that in the midst of their suffering, stay faithful to God all the way to the end of their life. And being people of truth means that you speak about your life, your circumstances, your suffering, whatever it might be, the same way that God would speak about it. We need to learn to speak about life and circumstances, trials and sufferings, the same way God, through his word, would speak about it. That's what it would look like to be people who speak truth. Which, if you think about it, would take us all the way back to chapter 1 and the entire chapter on how thinking right, uh, living right, and speaking right with regard to trials and sufferings is what we're called to do. And as a matter of fact, we're going to look there just in a bit, but it tells us there to consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter the various trials of life that you're going through. God wants to be your portion. He wants you to have a biblical worldview where you're thinking that the suffering I'm not happy about, but where I find my joy is in the reality that God, through this suffering, is going to be conforming me more into the beautiful image of Jesus Christ. We have to mentally and get to the place where we understand that and we own it. We comprehend it. We can get our arms around it. And it's ours. So that when the trials of the suffering hits, and they, and they do, and they will, that truth doesn't slip loose. And then we start speaking about our circumstances and our trials in ways differently than the Word of God would speak about them. Chapter 13, chapter 13 verse 13, let's keep moving. James goes on and he says, after that he says, is anyone among you suffering? Now what kind of question is that? Think about the context, think about everything we've been learning about these dear brothers and sisters. Now, now is anyone among you suffering? The obvious answer would be, yes, there's 
many among them who are suffering. And so then James gives the obvious, then he must pray. And so that's why I just simply titled the message this morning, A Needed Reminder. Pray. Pray. Now, this word suffering comes to us by this Greek word here. And I've dropped the definition here uh, for you out of the Luaunita lexicon. And it just, it's to suffer physical pain. Now, again, think context. Think about these brothers and sisters. To suffer physical pain, hardship, and distress. And then again, just to suffer distress, to suffer pain, suffering hardship. So there's a physical pain, a, a hardship, a distress that's coming into their lives because of the labor that they're doing, and then they're being mistreated on top of that, adding insult to injury to these brothers and sisters. So it refers to the condition resulting from, in their lives, the evil treatment that they are receiving at the hands of other people. They're, they're forced to labor, they're forced to work, they're not being paid. Some, it says, are being even put to death as a result of that. Again, we don't know exactly what that looked like, perhaps starvation or perhaps other means. But without question, the suffering that James is speaking of here would be due to their very unique circumstances. And he says they need to be people of prayer. You need to pray. Now, the Apostle Paul uh, showed us this himself, which I, I didn't put that one in there for you. I'm going to just read it to you. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.9, For which I suffer hardship, and so it's the same word there for suffer, even to imprisonment as a criminal. So the Apostle Paul is an example of suffering hardship as a result of the and ill treatment of others against his life, the hands of others. So the obvious question that James asked them was answered in the affirmative that they, there are many there who are suffering. Their suffering comes as a direct result of the suffering of others. And if you remember from chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom... Wisdom in what? In being able to consider your various trials as joyful. If you lack that wisdom, right here, pray. Let him ask of God. It seems again that James is coming full circle with the same advice that he was given to the brothers at the very beginning. If you're having a hard time this morning, brothers and sisters, understanding why you're going through the circumstances in life that you're going through Ask God for wisdom. Pray. Develop an intimate prayer life. And one of the most difficult disciplines that I have heard of from others and, heck, and can affirm in my own life is the discipline of getting still before God and praying, talking to God, learning how to share your heart to God Almighty. We are in such a hurry to get places these days. And unfortunately, we're in a hurry to get to social media apps. We're in a hurry to get to some football game that's meaningless on the tube. We're in such a hurry to get so many places other than to the feet of Christ in prayer. Now, if that felt like I stepped on your toe a little bit, I stepped on mine first, just so you know. We're all in need of a little reminder from time to time, amen? We need to be people of prayer. And for 
not only for ourselves, but in prayer for others, bearing others' needs as well. Now, in the context of suffering and praying and asking God and being able to have joy while in the midst of that, I failed to bring the book that I was going to read to you from this morning. And so Charlie Jones said, oh, well, look it up online. I bet you can find a digital copy of it. And I did, Mindy. And so it's really small, but I want to read this to you. Um, have you heard of Corey Ten Boom? Very difficult circumstances, indeed. Uh, this is from her book, Tramp of the Lord, which was her sequel to The Hiding Place. These were her circumstances, and just, and just listen. I think this kind of settles in a lot of what I think James would be trying to communicate here. She said, when you are dying, when you stand at the gate of eternity, you see things from a different perspective than when you think you may live for a long time. I'd been standing at the gate for many months, living in Barrack 28 in the shadow of the crematorium. Every time I saw the smoke pouring from the hideous smokestacks, I knew it was the last remains of some poor woman who had been with me in Ravensbrook. Often I asked myself, when will it be my time to be killed or die? But I was not afraid. Following Betsy's death, God's presence was even more real. Even though I was looking into the valley of the shadow of death, I was not afraid. It is here that Jesus comes the closer, taking our hand and leading us through. One week before the order came to kill all the women of my age, I was free. I still do not understand all the details of my release from... All I know is, it was a miracle of God. She had a capacity, and I love the way she states it here. This is so small, I can't find it now. I'm going to paraphrase it. That in her greatest hour of need, she sensed that Jesus came nearer still. Isn't that good? And sometimes we find ourselves kind of fretting or worrying about the thing that it hasn't even come yet. And how will I handle this? Or how will I handle that? Well, just remember what James said. Each day has enough worry of its own. You can't add one stitch to your life. You should say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or we will do that. The closer the trial or the fire in the trial to your life, the closer Christ comes and the realer he will be in your life. So just live. Live under the peacefulness of God. Live knowing that he has ordained your days every single day, the first from the last. So whether you're these brethren that James is writing to that need to be patient because of their difficult circumstances, and then they need to rem remind themselves that they're in a need of a place of prayer and they're suffering, physically pain, they're physically suffering as a result of that, no matter who, who you are, these brothers and sisters or you, in your circumstances, Whatever it may be, the greater the, the suffering 
in your life, the closer I believe the Lord will come to you. Remember what he said, I will never what? Leave you nor forsake you. And I don't know if it's a closeness in terms of proximity. I don't think it's a proximity closeness that I'm talking about at all. Okay? But it's the sense of our perspective of his nearness. And nearness might be a a better way of describing this. Because whenever we're living footloose and carefree, oftentimes we're not thinking about what? Oftentimes, we don't find ourselves thinking about the nearness of God. And hence, we have a hard time settling ourselves and being still before the Lord and knowing that He is God and cultivating the prayer life and the disciplines of prayer and the reading of the Word or perhaps even the Scripture scripture memory and things of this nature. But when suffering gets tight and you feel its pinch, we oftentimes turn, don't we? And where was he? He was always there already. So it's not a closer in the sense of nearness. It's closer in the sense of our understanding his nearness. It's really our emotions being more alive into his presence that's always with us at all times. And I think Corey captured that very perfectly in her situations. How about you? Paul said it this way, that whenever in Philippians that uh, whenever he was in, in prison wrongly, he says only that in every way Christ is proclaimed, therein I rejoice. His rejoicing was based on not his circumstances, but his pre- the presence of Christ and the peace that he had with God in one eighteen and three one. He says, finally, brethren, what? Rejoice in the Lord. And again in 4.2, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. So we need to be those who think about, speak about, and live under the context of our trials and be truth speakers the same way God speaks about them as well. But he goes on in verse 13, and after he says, is anyone among you suffering? Which the obvious answer is yes, and then you must pray. He says, is anyone cheerful? Now, contextually, this is a very, this is a bit of a quagmire. Because it doesn't seem to fit the context and the flow of the context. James has a a context that flows very well. And so we start thinking, okay, well, how then does this fit within that broader context? That these are the brothers and sisters who are dispersed abroad. They've lost everything because of their faith in Christ. They're now day laborers in some wealthy people's fields. The physical labor that they're enduring to put bread on their table is very difficult. Some of them have been, have been injured. They're suffering as a result of that physically. They haven't been paid. Some of them are perhaps dying as a result of that. How does cheerful, is anyone cheerful? It seems very difficult to get that to fit within the context of what James is saying. Because if there is someone who's cheerful, he says that their response is that they need to sing praises. So if you're suffering, and the obvious would be probably most of them were, they need to be in prayer. But if anyone is cheerful, they need to be singing praises. And the longer I thought about that, and the more commentaries I read about that, the more perplexing this passage became. There's not a lot of clarity there. And so the way that I have narrowed this passage down in verse 13 contextually is to understand that these individuals who are cheerful must therefore be those individuals who have learned the art of finding joy in the midst of their trials. 
just like James said in chapter 1. And as a result of comprehending the truth of what James has said to them in chapter 1, if they're capable of getting to that place in their lives, in their heart, in their emotions, to where they can genuinely consider it joy when they're going through various trials, it would seem that they would then have the capacity to be cheerful. Does that make sense? That's the, that's the way I was trying to make some sense out of this. You got people suffering all around you. You have people in your community, which would be a very tight-knit community because they were of the 12 tribes who were dispersed. Some of them are even being put to death. I'm just having a hard time seeing a lot of circumstantial cheerfulness. So it seemed that the cheerfulness that perhaps James is talking about, has anybody found a cheerfulness in a place in their heart in light of thinking rightly about the trials that God's brought, that it's for your great good because every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. See James chapter, the end of chapter 1 or early in chapter 2 somewhere, right? I think it's the end of chapter 1. So biblical truth can get you to the place where you're thinking rightly so that you can live in such a place where you have peace with God and you can actually become cheerful in the midst of your suffering, which comes by way of a lot of praying. And so when you get there, don't forget to sing praises to your God. Because, by the way, who was the one that got you there? God. His word, his truth, the anchor for your soul. Are you following me? I, I wrestled with this passage. I went about three different directions with it, trying to make sense of it, and that was the best one I could come up with. If you got something better on that, let Matt know. But I'm going with that one. I like that one. We see this in Acts 16. 22. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. Welcome to Christianity and your best life now. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and what? Singing hymns of praise to God. Seems like they're kind of doing both of these things. Is anyone among you suffering? Let them pray. You become cheerful. You understand God's sovereign. He's in control. And the greatest thing they could do for you is actually maybe take your life. Because you got, what, a crown of life awaiting those who persevered with the Lord all the way to the end. James 1, 12. Remember that one? He's to sing praises. It seems like we see this modeled perfectly right here. Paul and Silas were praying. They are probably asking for wisdom. And then it led to them the singing hymns of praise to God. Now notice, and I threw in verse 30 here. Now this doesn't always happen this way, but in, on, on this occasion, notice the outcome of them using their platform of thinking through their life with a biblical worldview and just being willing to put it out there and live it truthfully. And it says there in verse 30, and after he brought them out, because they got tired of hearing this, he said, sirs, 
What must I do to be saved? Isn't that beautiful? What must I do to be saved was the jailer's response. Listen, your suffering, our suffering is a platform that God's allowed us to be on. And it's to demonstrate the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives, through the way we handle our living, our business, our suffering, our prosperity. Maybe it's prosperity that overwhelms you at some point in life. Does that blow your mind and you become something other than what you were? doesn't matter what the platform may be. In this context, it's a platform of suffering. That should be and needs to be a platform upon which your life is demonstrated to be the trophy of grace that it is, that God has put upon that mantle to, to an onlooking world. And he says, have you seen my man Job? Well, have you seen my man Nathan? And Amanda, my sister, have you seen these brothers and sisters? Have you seen how they endure hardships and suffering when it comes and knocking? Have you seen my servant Bruce? When the call comes and it's not the news you want, how do you respond? You pray. You're praying should turn your heart in a different direction that should then lead you to this. That's the best way I can understand this passage in the book of James. Again, if you can find one better, let Matt know, but I love this one. I'm sticking with it. Verse 14, because it fits. It fits the context, and it makes sense. And you've heard of Occam's razor? When something makes sense, don't go looking for other sense. That made sense. It fit the context. Now, there's one more group of afflicted that James wants to address here in 14. And he says, is any among you sick? Is any among you sick? And you see this, he's asking you a question. You see that right there? Is any among you sick? Question mark. Um, well, uh, when you go back to the Greek text, what we discover is that the, there's not a, a marker there for the question mark. So in the, in the original, it seems to be more of just a statement of fact that would be translated something like, some among you are sick, or someone among you is sick, which again would be well-fitting the context and the suffering and the needs for patience that these brothers and sisters uh, have been going through. So when you think about this, whether you like it as a question or just as a statement of fact, the, the thing that we have to ask ourselves about this word sick, is anyone among you sick or some among you are sick? What kind of sick does James have in mind here? Is James talking about uh, the flu bug? Is anyone among you suffering with the flu or is anyone suffering with uh, dysentery right now? Or is anybody suffering with uh, severe migraines? What? Or is it all the above? Just is it, is it bodily ailment sickness that James is talking about? Because it seems like, is any among you suffering? The word suffering there had the idea of physical suffrage. And so then this might um, seem to be uh, of, of the same nature as that. 
So trying to understand this word for sick becomes an important reality. And so this is from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, the TDNT. And the very first definition it gives, now the TDNT is very tedious and it goes on for a long time, but it seems to me that out of the many options, this first one here that they make mention of really seems to fit the context that James is dealing with here very well. And in the TDNT, it says the first main meaning is weak or weakness or to be weak, originally in the physical sense. So, in keeping in the context of this entire chapter and in the entire book, if you will, it seems best to understand this sickness to be a physical weariness, probably resulting again from the hard labor and the lack of food, resulting in physical, mental, and spiritual fatigue. It's a weakness, it's a weariness that is preventing them from thinking rightly about their suffering. And so there is a need for patience, there's a need for wisdom, there's a need for prayer. I think without question there would have been some there who were physically sick. Without question, there would have been some there physically sick and had a head cold or some other stomach flu or whatever that might be. It just doesn't, in my opinion, seem to fit the context as tidily. I mean, listen, life's not going on very well for some of these. And again, many of these to whom James is writing are not responding well to the, to the written word that he has sent them. Remember, um, more than likely, they're not responding well with his word in verse 7 when he said, you need to be patient, brethren. Just after verse 5 and 6, indicating that the righteous are even being put to death. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient. More than likely, they're not responding with great patience. In verse 8, they're, they're unable to strengthen their own hearts, as James was reminding them in verse 8. In verse 8, as James was uh, compelling them to, to stay fast because of the coming of the Lord and the nearness of that, they're feeling very uncompelled about the Lord's coming because of the circumstances that they are faced with. And all they know how to do is complain, not only against one another, which is exactly why he told them not to do in verse 9, but about most things in life. Have you ever noticed um, how when you get frustrated about one thing, it tends to spill over into many? And telling them not to swear, verse 12, but instead pray, verse 13, would perhaps seem to them to be an impossibility. And just perhaps, maybe there's even some of you here this morning who have gone through various trials of your own that when you read through this list, you recognize the difficulty of it even in your own life. I perhaps could get an amen. I'm not going to ask. I'm sure many of us have felt the struggles of that on many occasions. These are the kinds of believers who would tell you that chapter 1, verse 6 is impossible. Praying for wisdom to rightly understand trials, can't do it. And while they are perhaps at a place where they are no longer able to do the things that James has been commanding them to do that would help them in their circumstances, which is to pray, 
it seems that perhaps God, in his wisdom, because his mercy triumphs over judgment, is making even a way, is making a provision for these brothers and sisters. when they can't do it for themselves. And I don't know about you, but I think, and I find this to be a very compelling and a very beautiful understanding of this passage. Is anyone among you sick? So physically wearied, emotionally, spiritually, physically? You're incapable of doing the things, and again, I don't think it's a question, I think it's just a statement. That's probably the reality of a lot of these brothers and sisters. He says, then he must call for the elders of the church. The importance of community is seen in, this, in the context of this. It shouts so loudly. The, the context of community, the, the, the calling for the elders within a church, that means that you're a part of a church family that that you, you've committed to them and they're thus committed back to you. There's a, a commitment one to the other. You're not just an outlier that shows up occasionally to a local church. You're a member at a church because you recognize that while they may not agree with all your personal preferences and vice versa, all those secondary issues at the end of the day when you're suffering like this really don't matter. So it seems God perhaps has made a way for those who are incapable of even praying for themselves because they've become so wearied and exhausted in their daily lives, in their difficulties. He says, call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him. They're going to pray for you. They're going to do for you perhaps what you can't even do for yourself. And they're going to request... And, and, and beseech the Lord on your behalf to try to help lift you up in a way that you don't even think that you can on your own. And so you call for the elders of the church, they're going to pray over them, and they're going to anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now the anointing with the oil combined with the prayer, a lot of times we take that in a very... Uh, kind of a very rigid sense where the elders get called on in the church and they take a flask of, of really pure olive oil and they'll go over to the brother or sister's house who's in need of prayer because they are sick and sometimes, a lot of times in that case, it is a physical illness or perhaps they're wearied and they'll just put a little oil on their finger and rub it across their head and that anointing of oil symbolizing oftentimes in the scriptures the spirit of God and the presence of, the, of God's spirit, the anointing of oil on their forehead and then praying or sometimes like pouring it over their head and letting it run down their face if you get a little extravagant. It would seem in this context that the anointing of the oil with which is being talked about here, the, this word anointing, do I have that one? I don't have that one. I don't have that one. I have an example of it right there. But the anointing right there, I probably have it in here. It's the idea of just, of, um, it's from a, a Greek word, aletheo, 
to rub or to apply. It's like the application of an oil. And it would seem that back in that day, and even in our day today, there are many oils that have medicinal purposes. It almost seems like the elders of the church are going to come and pray over this individual who is wearied to the point of just not being able to to manage life. They're just at their wit's end. Perhaps it was their dear wife who died at the hands of the unrighteous wealthy. We don't know because it doesn't specify, but we can maybe infer some of that. But at the end of the day, if you're at this place where you're so wearied you can't pray for yourself, the elders are to come in. They're to pray over you, and they are to rub some oils on you. Now, if that's some kind of a medicinal oil, uh, perhaps it goes back to where it says, are any of you suffering? Right here, verse 13, are there any among you suffering? And we looked at this word for suffering. It had the idea of a physical ailment. So perhaps the, the, the idea here is also that of a physical ailment. And so the rubbing on of the oil was for a medicinal purpose on an ailment that an individual has incurred while doing the day labor work that they were doing. There's a lot that remains a little bit unclear and uncertain in how this plays itself out, except for the fact except for the fact that there, are, there were brothers and sisters, genuine believers, who were amongst the tribes who were dispersed abroad because of their testimony in the Lord Jesus Christ found themselves in some very difficult circumstances, and many among them are suffering, and they're sick, they're wearied. Maybe it's a physical sickness, maybe it's just a weariness of soul. Either way, they're incapable of praying, so ask for the elders of the church. The need for community and of a church, of a, of a church community, of belonging to a church, of not keeping yourself distanced from a church for whatever reason, you don't like the this, you don't like the that. Listen, in America, there's a church on almost every corner. You're bound to find some version of a church. And I may not think it much to be a church, but if you do, then God bless you. I would be glad to walk you through the scriptures and that little booklet that I point out to you every Sunday morning on what healthy churches should be doing. However, that being said, you need to be connected in a community because there may become a time in your life where you call for elders and they will come and we're going to rub camphophonique all over you. And we're going to pray that God will strengthen your wearied soul and prop up a heavy heart, verse 8, and give you good, sound biblical counsel, reminding you, too, that the day of the Lord is near. Hang in there. Just hang in there. All the way to the end of your life. No greater joy. Amen? Oh, and the very end here, verse 14, in the name of the Lord. I think that is very telling. In the name of the Lord. You know, in a culture where we have, um, where we've deified pastors, and oh, brother, so, and, you know, it's the, the superstar pastor is the culture in which we're living these days. And every megachurch has got to have their superstar pastor. It has nothing to do with the pastor. It's Christ. Christ is the head of the church. We're under rowers. We're simply here under rowing in Christ's church, trying to cut it straight 
so that God's people can be nourished in green pastures. So as you scatter, you go about doing the Lord's business of being an example and being a witness to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything we do needs to be in the name of the Lord when it comes to doing the Lord's business and working with God's people and his children. Amen? There should, all this, there should be no superstar pastors. And Isn't it amazing what the internet can froth up? It is amazing. Well, I'm looking at the clock. I'm not going to get to verse 20 this morning. But we are next week. So we're just going to put a pin on it right here. We're going to drop our finger right here in the text. And, um, and we're going to get to uh, verse 15 next week. It's talking about that prayer that's offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. There's the sick again. And the Lord will raise him up. There's a lot to deal with right there that gets a little technical as well. So you're going to want to come back for that at least to, 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 to rectify this, some of these conundrums that I've caused you this morning. Perhaps not, especially in verse 14. But like I've said oftentimes from this pulpit is you need to go and you need to study God's word and you need to be a Berean and you need to study. You need to get some good resources. You need to be able to pull up the TDNT or the Lualnita or other resources and dig. Make certain the things I'm saying are so. That's what I do. I just go dig. Sometimes I read commentaries and I go, ah, ah, doesn't like that one because of this and that and that or whatever it might be. And there's a joy in that discovery that if, if you haven't done that yet, trust me, there's a joy in that discovery that will enliven your soul like nothing else can. Because it's manna from heaven, the very word of God. Amen? So we're going to kind of tidy this all up next week. We're going to pick up and kind of hit with the, the bigger applicational piece of that at the, at the end of next week. I've tried to touch on some of those applicational pieces for you along the way today. But next week, we'll kind of tidy it all up again and hit the, the, the applicational pieces for us. Um, but listen, if you're here this morning and you're not part of a church, maybe you attend a church, faithfully even, uh, there's reason that churches have church membership. And uh, we, we have church membership. And this might be the first time in three years that I've, from this pulpit, talked about church membership. I don't stand up here, I would say ever, because this might be the first time and try to talk people into membership at Jinx Bible Church. As a matter of fact, I purposefully try not to do that. If Pastor Matt has heard me say this once, he's heard me say this a hundred times, I never want to talk anybody into becoming a member at our church. I want God, the Spirit, to put that upon their heart. That this is a body wherein they feel like they could put their shoulder to the plow with, because we want to be a church that's about making disciples of all people who wants to put their shoulder to the plow, get involved, serve the body. Serve the body with gladness. And see, if you have to talk people into that, then those are the people oftentimes that are the quickest and obviously might be the first to want to leave when something goes down that they don't perhaps like. Okay? But in this context, they had the capacity to call on the elders of the church and it seems that these were their elders. They knew these elders. They knew these men. And they knew they could call on them. And James is saying, you need to do that. You need to be connected to a local church. If not this one, then someone somewhere. 
Amen? We've got to stop dating the church. You may not like every little nook and cranny. So do your research. What nooks and crannies can you put up with? Go start your own. God, God bless you. Go start your own. But let me leave you with that admonition here today. Become known within a local body so that you can be cared for like this when your time of need comes. Let's pray.